Marshfield with us. Uh, he and his wife Karen are both here. Karen is in one of the classes at this uh, moment, but they're both here and uh, it is a delight to have them. Dale spoke as keynote speaker several years ago and uh, hearts were greatly stirred and we are excited that he is able to come back and be with us. He has served many years on the mission field as the dossier will tell you in the program. Uh, the fact that he has spent time in South America, he has been with ABWE, now is doing a lot with theological education, especially in rural areas in India. And he also serves with ABTS, uh, which is on the operating uh, committee, which deals with uh, ministries all over Asia. And he is a great leader with that particular organization. It is a delight to call him a friend and a wonderful opportunity for us to hear from this great man of God. Let's give Dale Marshfield a warm welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Don. I've really enjoyed uh, working with your pastor in the context of ABTS and uh, really grown to appreciate his ministry. It was a blessing for Karen and I to be with you a couple of years ago during your missions conference, and so we've been praying and asking God to just meet with us during this time together this year. Your, your conference theme uh, made me think across the street and around the world. In 1982, uh, we packed up our family and moved across the world to South Africa. When we got there, we realized that everything was about going across the street. Didn't matter that we were halfway around the world. Across the street were two families. Uh, they had children about the ages of our children. And over the years, God gave us the opportunity to study his word with both of those families. Uh, one was totally non-religious, the other one was Catholic. Uh, one eventually confessed Christ. The husband and wife confessed Christ and became a part of our church plant. And the other family, after months of studying God's word, decided, no, we just cannot accept that God's gift of salvation is by grace alone. It was heartbreaking. Now, I'm telling you this story because whether we go around the world or not, the key is always right across the street. And there are probably thousands of reasons why we shouldn't go across the street. Fearfulness, the possibility of rejection, the fact that we might be misunderstood, and, and in India, most definitely, where I spent a lot of time, persecution, which Indian Christians are facing all of the time, every day. So even though there are a thousand reasons not to go across the street, this morning, I want to talk to you from your primary conference text about four compelling reasons why we must go. Why we must go across the street, whether it's in our own neighborhood or whether it's around the world. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 10 sets out four very compelling reasons. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, your conference theme is in verse 14. We might get there, no promises. <laughs> this is uh, probably one of the most challenging missionary passages I've ever studied. 
because it is just loaded with Old Testament passages and, and thinking that related to the days of the Apostle Paul. You see, he was a man who though he was going around the world was always going across the street to those who were closest to him in almost every way, his own people, the Jews. And in Romans chapter nine through 11, the apostle Paul is discussing the tragedy of the nation Israel's rejection of their own Messiah. John put it pretty simply. He came to his own and his own received him not. And for three chapters, the apostle Paul unpacks how this could happen, how this nation who had the promises and the covenants, who had the prophets foretelling that this Messiah would come, how they could actually reject him. And in the process of doing that, I see that he sets before us some compelling reasons why we should go to those in our world who in so many ways are just like the Jewish people in his world. People who, who had ideas about God that became a stumbling block to their embracing Christ. And that's, that's the first reason that I see here. Why go? That's the question. Why go? Number one, because what people believe makes a difference in their lives. That's why we need to go. Now it's uh, probably politically incorrect to talk about the fact that people believe the wrong things and that those wrong things can be profoundly destructive, but, but that is a fact, that is true. And we need to go so that we can bring the truth to people, so we can help them understand what God has said through Christ, what God has said in his word. Uh, I have uh, very rarely given invitations, uh, either in South Africa, where we worked with Indian people, or in India when I preach, mostly because it just seems to me that it takes so much teaching before a person is ready to make an intelligent decision about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We need to go because what people believe makes a difference in their lives. There are so many false understandings, and, and Paul identifies some of them here in chapter 10. Notice with me, I'm gonna jump past the first verse and come back to it later. But in verse two, he says, talking of the Jews in his day, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal is no substitute for knowing the truth about God. There are a lot of people that think it is. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerity, sincerely. It's sort of a hangover from the, the existential movement that, that carries on today. It doesn't matter if something is right or wrong as long as you believe it fervently and stake your life upon it. And Paul says, no, they have a zeal for God, but this zeal was not according to knowledge. Now, I, I just got back from India Sunday night. So I'm still kind of getting used to being eating American food, uh, which is a, a profound readjustment in many ways. I won't go into it. But uh, <clears throat> when we think about India, everywhere you go in India, there is zeal for gods. Uh, we here in the United States are philosophically a materialistic culture. Even within the Christian community, we tend to see things uh, scientifically, materialistically. But everywhere you go in India, there is evidence of the fact that these people believe deeply in a spiritual realm. 
that they also believe deeply that that spiritual realm profoundly influences their lives. So you see temples literally littering every street, people walking down the streets with the marks of Shiva on their forehead or some other mark of a god, bangles littering their wrists that have been blessed by a priest in some temple. Everywhere you go, there is evidence of their zeal for God or for gods, but it is not according to knowledge. And that belief that it doesn't really matter who you believe in as long as you believe it zealously, as long as you believe it sincerely, that is a profoundly destructive belief in their lives. It's a belief that the Apostle Paul had. By his own testimony, when when we read these moments where he shares about his life before he came to know Jesus Christ, we say, here was a man that was zealous for God. In Acts chapter 22, he says, I'm a Jew, Jew born of Tarsus, brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are here today. Later in chapter 26, he says, any of you that know me can testify how zealous I was for our religion. And then in chapter six, he says, I was so zealous and convinced that I dedicated my life to to destroying and eradicating the knowledge of this name, Jesus of Nazareth. He was zealous for God. Then in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, I acted in retrospect, looking back at those days in his life, he says, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He was zealous, but his zeal was not according to knowledge, and it was destroying his life. Why go? Because what people believe influences their lives, and this idea that that zeal for God is all that matters is just not true. Another false belief, religious devotion or work is a substitute for faith in God's work. Notice what it says in chapter 9, verse 31. It says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in attaining that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Their works, their devotion. This is probably a global and universal belief that I can do something that will either give me favor with God or in some way keep at bay the spirits that are attacking my life. And it works both ways depending on which culture you're working. That I can do something, I can do puja or I can make an offering or I can live righteously or fulfill some ethical standard and in so doing purchase favor or earn favor with God or keep back the evil spirits that are threatening my well-being. And people believe this deeply. It's one of those beliefs that, that profoundly influences their lives and keeps them bound up in fear. A, work that, a life that is based on devotion to religious devotion or religious works, but not faith in God's works. 
Now, where I work in India, this bleeds over into Christian experience. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me um, and they are concerned they have demons or, or something, and it's because they have always felt the only way I can be free is if I'm doing the right things. And it's such a joy to be able to share with them, you just need to trust in God. He's powerful enough. He's strong enough to perfect you, protect you. You just need to rest in the work that he does because it's not about your work. Religious devotion or work is not a substitute for faith in God, but many people believe it is, and it hurts their lives. Paul talks about the fact in verse 10 that another faulty idea, my righteousness is not a substitute for God's righteousness. Verse three in uh, chapter 10, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I can achieve a right standing with God. Now that can only lead to either discouragement if we're honest or arrogance if we're not honest with ourselves. It's a profoundly destructive belief. The Apostle Paul talks about it in chapter three uh, of Philippians. He says, he talks about the righteousness he found in Christ and he's thinking about his previous way of life and he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God by faith. People believe they can earn a right standing with God. They can earn membership in the family of God, incorporation into the community of God by their own righteous acts. And that's why we need to go. We need to share with them that is an unattainable goal. That is a bridge. That is a bridge too far. You'll never reach that one. And it is totally unnecessary because there is a righteousness for God, from God that is available in Christ. The Jews of Paul's day didn't understand that, and I think globally people do not understand that. But to me, um, this all becomes very practical. For for a number of years, Karen uh, cared for an elderly lady. Uh, She was a wonderful woman, sweet, uh, smart, had a great sense of humor at 92. I mean, Karen's her caregiver at 93, and Karen is saying to to her, hey Marge, uh, remind me to do this. Karen's asking the 92-year-old to remind her. That's how smart this lady was, just as sharp as a tack. She'd been a Roman Catholic nun in Nicaragua way back in the day where they rode horses into the jungles and all that kind of stuff. Um, And Karen spent hours with her talking about Jesus and about the free grace of Christ How there was nothing that we could do, nothing that we can contribute in order to gain the righteousness that God has for us, that it is freely given as a gift in Jesus Christ. And she couldn't accept that. She couldn't accept it. She stumbled because of her belief. She did just what it says in chapter 9, these Jews did. She stumbled over Christ. Christ tripped her up. And at times she would say to Karen, that's just too presumptive. That's just, that, that just makes me feel like I'm, I'm making an assumption about God. How could I ever do that? How could Christ, how could faith in the work of God alone be enough? 
And that belief tripped her up, stumbled. She stumbled over Jesus. And she went to her grave with fear because she never had confidence that she, she would say to Karen, I wish I could be sure I was forgiven. The thing which Hebrew says is the basic birthright of every Christian. The placard that we ought to put on the ceilings above our bed so that every morning we wake up and see it that says, you are forgiven, forgiven. And she said, no, I can't, I can't believe that's true. She stumbled. Her belief led her to stumbling over Jesus. And that really, to me, leads to the worst of all the things that Paul talks about, the false beliefs that Paul talks about here in this uh, 10th chapter. In verse 10, he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The false belief, this one here, I, I, I can be a substitute for Christ. Now, that's pretty brazen, and very few people would say it, but many people believe it. I can be a substitute for Christ. And Paul says, no, Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is, is the, the place to which everything God ever said in the Old Testament was leading because he is the only one who can do for us what needs to be done. And to support that, this is where the passage really challenged me, your passage you selected and gave to me. <clears throat> to support that idea, he quotes from Deuteronomy 30, an amazing passage. Now, you remember the book of Deuteronomy is like the treaty God makes with Israel based on the Mosaic law. And God rehearses the entire law, and then he goes through all of these blessings. Oh, if they would obey God, they would be blessed in every way possible as a nation. Now, it's not saying there, if you obey God, you'll be saved. That was never even a part of the agenda. They were saved. They were his elect people. They had been redeemed by blood from Egypt. They were his people. But he's saying, you will be distinguished and I will be able to bless you on earth as no other nation if you will just obey me. And then he says, but if you don't, <laughs> because you're my people, because you're my people, I will curse you, I'll punish you. And I'll punish you just as thoroughly as I would have blessed you. And he rehearses all of these curses that God is going to bring on his people. And, and, you know, then he says, and as a matter of fact, in the future, because I can see where this is going, <laughs> you're going into captivity. I'm going, to, I'm going to punish you so severely, you're going into captivity. And when you're in captivity, I want to give you a promise. When you're feeling the sting of your own failure, when you're sensing just how little you can do on your own, I want to make a promise to you. And that promise is quite amazing in Deuteronomy 30. He says, I will, in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Long before Jeremiah ever spoke the new covenant, God had already made that promise. He said, when you're feeling the sting of defeat, I want you to think about this promise. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's my promise to you. I will change you 
from the inside out. I will transform you and then all of the blessings will come upon you. And then Moses says to the people, he said, now listen, I know you. Don't ask how this can possibly be. Don't say, oh, who's gonna go up into heaven and bring this blessing down to us? Or who's gonna go across the sea and get this for us? He said, just believe the promise. That's the word of faith. And Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 10 and he actually quotes that verse from Deuteronomy but he inserts Christ into it in verse six. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is what it says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, it is the word of faith we proclaim. What is he saying? Very simple, Christ is the one who will do this for you. Christ is the one who will cut evil away from our heart. Christ is the one who will bring forgiveness into our life. Christ is the one who can give us the ability to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. Only Jesus can do that. That's what he's saying. And then he says, you can't. The word of faith is the confession only Jesus can do for me what I need to have done for me. But the false belief that is rampant in our world is I can do it for myself and we cannot. And because people believe that, they suffer. You remember those two families I told you about? Now, the one family that trusted Christ, they've had a hard go of it. Um, But they're still walking with Jesus, and Jesus has shown them through the hardships of life that we all face. The couple that didn't, I just sometimes wonder what a difference it would have made if they would have come to the place where they said, the only one who can do for me what needs to be done is Jesus. Their lives are not the same. No, we love those people, and every time I'm back in South Africa, I still want to see them, but, but I think Jesus would have made a huge difference. They're no longer together. It's just been a hard road for them because Christ is the only one who can do for us what needs to be done, and very few people believe it, so we go. We go because what people believe makes a difference in their lives, but We also go because of what it says in verse 9. And this is an inconvenient truth in 2022. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's the only way. We go because there is no other way for people to experience salvation than through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. And I think as as believers, as politically incorrect as that might be, we have to be very clear on it. We have to be very clear on it. There is no other way. I I sometimes tire uh, when I hear people talk about how amazing Hinduism is. I should probably be careful what I say, but... Oh, it's such a beautiful religion. Well, I I get it. I love to read the Upanishads. The Upanishads are beautiful literature. But when you see the culture that Hinduism has bred, 
When you see what caste has done to a society, and, and of course racism, we're in no place to cast stones here in America. We've done the same thing for different reasons. But, but in India, it is so, so obvious the influence that caste has. When you understand how karmic thinking influences ethical decisions, because basically you think that person is getting what they deserve, so why should I help them? There are those that have said that all of the compassionate work that has kind of come into India has come because of Christian missions there. I, when I was ministering in South Africa, we were planning a church in an Indian township, and we were doing all of these community outreaches, all kinds of stuff, trying to help people with their lives and build kind of an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. And we got in trouble with the Hindu uh, Dharma Sabha. Uh, it was in the newspapers, they said we were trying to steal children from their schools, all this kind of stuff. And a local professor at, a, at an Indian university calls me up one day and says, I wanna have lunch with you. So we go to lunch together and, and he says, look, we don't feel that you should do this kind of stuff. You're doing camps for children. You're doing counseling for marriage. You're you know, helping people financially. And, and, and I said, well, um, yeah, they need those things. And he said, well, that's not the point. The point is we don't do those kind of things. In Hinduism, we don't do that and we don't think you should do it. Well, I, didn't, I did ask him, why don't you do it? But we won't go into that whole conversation. The, 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 there, there is no noble paganism out there, folks. There is only one way that people can escape the guilt and the suffering that comes from sin, and that is through what it says in verses 9 and 10, and that is why we go. We must confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And that, that first phrase is, is powerful. Confess, Jesus is Lord. It kind of attacks things at two levels. In one, at one level, the declaration Caesar is Lord was a common cultural perspective. The imperial cult was uh, very dominant at this time in, in Paul's experience. And everywhere you went, people gave uh, honor uh, to Caesar as Maybe not God, but as something more than human. And they honored him with this phrase, Caesar is kurios, Caesar is Lord. And so in one sense, when Paul says, you must confess Jesus is Lord, he's saying, you must demolish every humanly concocted idol in your lives. Whether it's Caesar, whether it's wealth, whether it's position, power, idols, whatever it is, none of that is Lord. And so this confession kind of speaks to the human plane. But then it also, and more profoundly, when he says you must confess Jesus is Lord, what he's saying is you must confess Jesus is Yahweh. Over 6,000 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word kurios is used to translate the title Jehovah or Yahweh, whatever you want to say. Uh, many passages that talk about the supremacy and the greatness of Yahweh, like um, we have in, in Isaiah 45, five through seven. I'll just read it to you. I am Jehovah and there is no other 
Besides me, there is no God. I gird you, though you do not know me, that men may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am Jehovah, the Lord, and there is none other. I form light and create darkness. I make well and create woe. I am Jehovah, the Lord, who does these things. Over 6,000 times, this word kurios translates Jehovah. And what Paul is saying is, you must confess Jesus is the ultimate, supreme Jehovah God. That is what you must confess. The word confess is interesting. It means you must believe this is what is real. Christ is absolutely supreme. Um, The word confession means that. It's not just, you know, oh yeah, uh, a verbal, uh, meaningless statement in the Bible. It's not a religious ritual like going to confession. Uh, I think the best place to understand what confession is, if you go to John 19, I'll tell you the story. And, And I say this because in Timothy, it says, Jesus confessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What did Jesus do when he stood before Pontius Pilate? very simple. Pilate, Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or set you free? That's Pilate's confession of reality, and it is legitimate. He's not an idiot. He has imperial power. He he has done this before. He has crucified people. He has killed people, and nobody's called him into question. In Pilate's reality, he, that's the world he lives in. He is the supreme authority. And then Jesus makes confession. He says, sorry, you would have no power if it were not given to you by my Father. And in that moment, he shows that Pilate is living in one reality and Jesus is living in another reality. To Jesus, the supreme authority of God, the sovereign rule of his Father was the the most basic element of what is real in the world. And Paul uses that word here. You must confess. You must understand reality in terms of the ultimate supremacy of Jesus. This is so important where we work in India. I mean, the easiest thing in the world is to get Indians to add another god to their shelf. Right? I mean, they have uh, thousands of gods already. Jesus is a pretty good one to add on there. Um, It's very easy to do that. But that's not the confession. It's not Jesus is convenient or Jesus would be nice to have as my friend or it's Jesus is Lord, Yahweh. And he says you must confess that with your mouth. I don't think that necessarily means it has to be a public declaration. It doesn't say that. In India and even in South Africa, we didn't always encourage people to publicly declare what they believed in their hearts because of what that would mean for them in life. But they needed to confess it. They needed to confess it so that they could identify with other people who shared that, that could be an encouragement to them, whether it was in an official church or just in a group in their home where they could, like we saw in Afghanistan, meet underground but they confess it because it becomes a basis of uniting with other believers. You must make this confession and you must believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead. That doesn't minimize his death 
Because remember, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that his death accomplished everything that God said it would accomplish. His resurrection marks him out as the son of God with power. His resurrection says the father accepted the sacrifice on the cross and that he did gain victory over our sin and over our death when he died in our place. And he says, this is the only way. The only way people escape the guilt of their sin is if they make this confession and they believe this in their heart. We have to be clear on this. That's why we go. That's why we go. Third reason we go, because Jesus never disappoints. I I really think that um, twice he talks about this. In verse nine, in chapter nine and in verse uh, 33, it says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he repeats it later in our text in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, no disappointment with Jesus. No shame with Jesus. We have something, a good gift to offer people. Look, we live in a world filled with disappointment, a world uh, uh, in which shame kind of It's such a common experience. I work in a world where people for their whole lives have been treated and and treated contemptuously and made to feel shame just because of who they are, because they're low caste or because they're Dalit. They are not as worthwhile as somebody else. And into that context, we come to offer a gift. Jesus offers you shamelessness. You'll never be disappointed with him. And I think it's beautiful the way Paul deals with this in chapter 10. Three times he says it. He says in verse 11, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Doesn't matter who you are. And this is one reason why in India right now, within the last two months, they're passing anti-conversion laws in the state where I work a lot, Karnataka, because they say we are inducing people to believe the gospel. We're tricking people to believe the gospel because when we tell them that when you come to Jesus, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Dalit Dalit or high caste, none of that is there. There is no shame in Jesus ever again for anyone that we're tricking people into believing in Jesus, low caste people. And so all these anti-conversion laws are being passed by the Hindutva there. And you need to pray for our Indian brothers and sisters because this is making it increasingly hard on them. Uh, anyone can step forward and say, no, they promised me a job or they said that I would, uh, they'd give me money if I became a Christian and if the accusa- accusation goes, the person gets arrested. And then they have to spend what little money they have to defend themselves, sometimes even to get out of prison. And, and even if they don't, even if they are acquitted, They've basically been financially ruined. So we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in India. This is very difficult for them. And a lot of it stems just from this simple idea, in Christ, there is no disappointment. We have a gift to offer that leads to shamelessness. Just think of that. Uh, In Hebrews, it says that our consciences have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, personally, And socially, this is what we have to offer. Now, I, I'm a terrible gift giver. I'll admit it. At 46 years of marriage, 
I can count on one hand the number of great gifts I've given to my wife. I give her gifts, I give, they're just, not many of them have really rung the bell. Um, I, I don't know what to do. I used to take my daughter shopping with me. She, she demanded to come because on the 40th, on my wife's 40th birthday, I bought her a rocking chair. Um, and so after that, Karen, Jamie said, no, Dad, I'll come and shop with you. And they got a little better. First gift I ever gave to my wife. We weren't even married. And I thought, I should buy her a dress. So I, <laughs> the women, <laughs> why don't you win? Why doesn't mothers tell your sons these things? <laughs> so I go out and I buy her what I thought was a very pretty dress. Sort of had the grandma's curtain floral print on it. To this day, she refers to it as the slinky dress I gave her. <laughs> Never got worn. So look, I'm not really good at giving gifts, but here's a gift we all can be good at giving. The gift of, of someone who will never lead to disappointment. Oh sure, in life we might have disappointment. In life we might experience shame just like he did. He endured the shame of the cross, but we have the joy that is set before us. That's the gift we have to give. That's why we go across the street. That's why we go around the world because Jesus never disappoints. We'll never be put to shame. And then, final reason why we need to go. Because we care. I said I'd come back to verse one. I wanna to go to verse nine, or to chapter nine, verse one first. Chapter nine, verse one, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites. Wow. Why did Paul go to every synagogue in every city of the Roman Empire as his first stop, even though he knew it would probably lead to rejection and beating? Because of what we just read there because of how deeply he cared for these people. In chapter one, or chapter 10 and verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Why go? Because we care. We care about these people who, who are bound by false beliefs. We care about these people who have only one hope, Jesus Christ. We care about these people who are missing the gift of shamelessness in Christ. We care about them, and so we go. You know, I, I love the way this passage ends in uh, chapter 10, verse 14. Your, your theme verse, I got there, look at that. I love the way it ends because it's this ancient, it appears an ancient creed or ancient hymn of the first church. And we can put our names right into that creed. We can put our names right into that hymn if we want to, if we, if we think about it. Just imagine how it would read if we do that. How are your family, your neighbors, your associates to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of John and Mary 
and Devi and Raja and Phyllis and David and Joseph and whatever your name is as you go out and preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Why go across the street, even if it means going around the world? Because what people believe makes a difference in their lives. Because there's only one way for them to be free from the guilt of their sin. Because Jesus never disappoints. And hopefully, hopefully, as you're sitting here today and you're thinking, maybe I should go. Because I care. I care about those people. I care about those people in India. We cared about those people in South Africa. You care about your neighbors. And that's why, even though there's a thousand reasons not to go, that's why we go across the street and around the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege. What a privilege we have to represent Jesus What a privilege we have to offer this gift of life in Christ, this gospel which transforms people, this this opportunity to enter into a relationship with the one person who can do for us and for them everything that needs to be done. Oh, Father, we pray we wouldn't take it for granted. We pray that you would raise up in this church people who are willing to go across the street, even if that means going across the world, around the world, raise them up, we pray, for Jesus' glory. Amen.